0: Hi, David Jameson here, editor of Contour.scot. We've just launched Contour Radio, a raft of new free podcasts examining international affairs, political economy, Scottish politics, and much more are on their way. To mark the occasion, we're publishing some podcasts that were previously behind the paywall. In Scotland's Chamocracy, James Foley talks to Jeanette Finlay, Senior Lecturer in Economics at Glasgow University and Chair of Call It Out, about the dirty business of Holyrood governance. Is the Holyrood village uniquely susceptible to cronyism? Is Scotland's civil society too dependent on grant funding and old PAL networks? To hear more from us, why not subscribe to Contour Radio wherever you get your podcasts? hello everyone and welcome to Conto. We're absolutely delighted to be joined today by Jeanette Finley Jeanette in addition to being a senior lecturer at Glasgow University is chair of Call Out and has been involved in a range of activities including being part of fans against Criminalisation. What we're here to talk about today is a number of different topics concerning the question of Irish identity in Scotland. But what we're going to start off by talking about is the Scottish government itself and how the transition from new labour, rule and governance to the dominance of the SNP affected things in relation to Scottish identity, in relation to the experience of minorities in Scotland, and in relation to how civil society in Scotland links up with the state. So I kind of want to begin on that topic, Jeanette, if that's okay. Would you be up for talking about the perception of the Scottish government as being this exemplary model of how the state might engage civil society? We get a lot of talk of consultations and of listening exercises and so on. And many people will contrast that positively, if you like, with the experience that people might have of Westminster and the negative things that they associate with Boris Johnson and so on. How valid do you find the progressive credentials? First of all, thanks for inviting me on to talk
1: about this very interesting subject. I don't think they're valid to any great extent at all. In fact, I think there's something very wrong about how the Scottish government, the current Scottish government, goes about its business in this regard. There are very specific kinds of consultations which are around bills. So I have a bit of knowledge about that because of our engagement in fans against criminalisation and how that uh, Offensive Behaviour Act was brought into being and then how it was then finally repealed. So I was quite heavily involved in that and saw how they went about their business. There are other kinds of consultations which are less formal. They're probably the ones to be even more worried about. There are things to be worried about in terms of the formal ones, but there are things to be even more worried about in terms of the informal ones. Who it is that the Scottish Government speaks to and who they listen to and who they decidedly don't listen to and how that understanding of who's in and who's out is pervasive and spread in my opinion, throughout the Scottish Civil Service. So they're fully on board with with all of that. They know who it is that they can talk to and who they shouldn't talk to, or at least shouldn't listen to, whether they're forced to talk to them at some point or another. It's really pervasive. And they cultivate organisations, often organisations that they fund, who they then ask to give evidence to them And funnily enough, it's evidence that they like. So there is a really serious democratic issue. And I've got lots of examples of that. Some of them quite disturbing, I think.
0: Are these examples that you could share? Because I suspect this is something that some people will not know what this looks like. And certainly there used to be this term surrounding New Labour's rule in Scotland when he talked about the chumocracy, the little groups of people circling the Scottish Parliament and getting invited again and again. Is this a picture that you recognise of the Scottish government today under SNP rule?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yes, I can share all of them I'm a completely open and transparent being, so there's nothing to hide here. So let's look at an example I talked before about formal legislation. So how that works is either the government or somebody, an MSP, puts forward a bill. So it's in some shape or form. Usually they've had some pre-consultation before that, if it's an MSP's bill rather than a government bill, then they'll try and ascertain whether this thing's got any wings really, whether it's going to look good or people like it or whatever. If it's a Scottish government bill, then I'm not absolutely sure how that comes about in the first instance. That probably comes about in a less transparent way and that they just talk to people and decide a bill needs to be had. And I think that's probably what happened with the Offensive Behaviour Act in the first place. But anyway, so once they get past that state, then there's usually a lead committee which will deal with the scrutiny of the bill. So they'll have a public consultation, which will be on the government's website. And you'll either know about that because some campaign that's interested in this bill will make sure that you know about it. All that the Scottish government does is just put it up on its site. And I'm trying to think whether, certainly know anything I've been involved with, whether they push it more uh, vigorously than that. But really, it's just there. Sometimes it's quite hard to find That's the other thing. But if there's a campaign that's really pushing this, then that's how people will come to know about it. So the Scottish government is consulting people all the time on a whole lot of things. So unless you take the trouble to go and look, then you won't know that. And therefore, only people who are in the know, who've either been alerted or or whatever, will go and fill that in. And then based on that, they will take the next step. So they say, oh, no, we've consulted and this is what's been said. So first of all, you don't know what the Scottish government's consulting on unless you go and look at their website regularly. And even then you might have trouble finding it. But the one we were talking about was the repeal of the Offensive Behaviour Act. And the the Justice Committee had a session one time. So they have them say it's a Tuesday afternoon for that committee or whatever. And they invite people to come. And they had a session where they were looking at equalities organisations. So they were looking at the equalities aspect of that. And do remember that class is not a protected characteristic. So, yeah, so, so, has about so, so, yes. so nobody cares if the working classes get hammered. But anyway, Absolutely and, and their and the, the nasty pursuits and their the littering and, and all, all of that kind of thing. They're, they're all awful people, right? Anyway, so, so they had this equalities one and, and it was various organisations. And they invited SCOJEC, the Scottish Council for Jewish Communities, an organisation that I've engaged with myself. So the person who turned up said he'd never been to a football match in, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. <laughs> But he thought it would be really terrible if people were anti-Semitic at football. You're thinking, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, that would be really terrible. That actually would be really terrible. I'm not sure that's evidence, right? So he says that. Then Stonewall, Scotland, turn up and... The guy calling some starts off by telling some story about how he also hadn't been to a football match for a very long time Mm -hmm. and had been taken by his father, I think, to a Rangers match. And it turns out that wasn't a very pleasant experience for him and he didn't feel comfortable in that context. And I'm no one but surprised, but that's not, necessarily, <laughs> <laughs> that's not necessarily evidence that you can draw many conclusions about other than the patently obvious one. And then they start to say things like, gay people tell us they don't feel comfortable at football. And you are thinking, when did they tell you that? And how many of them told you that? Because I've gave evidence to the Scottish government. I expect somebody to say to me, well, what's the basis of this evidence your sure, government? It has to be based on expertise, no just casual chats about what may be the case. They weren't really questioned closely about this because clearly their evidence was welcomed. So there was nothing about where they'd collected this evidence, how they'd collected it, how representative it was, anything. So, of course, loads of gay football supporters were saying, they never asked me. <laughs> I don't, that's no, that doesn't reflect my experience. Anyway, so they did that. Yeah. The best one was the Scottish Women's Convention. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Scottish Women's Convention. I wasn't before this particular incident, but I certainly became familiar with them. So this woman turned up who was a paid official of the Scottish Women's Convention, who starts giving all this evidence about what they do and how they collect evidence and they do these round tables in various parts of the country. And And she starts telling stories about young girls being shouted at because they had a particular school uniform. And I'm thinking, what's that going to do with what it is we're here to talk about? Couldn't they make any sense of that? So she was asked, you know, we did a survey. We did a survey, sorry. And trying to link football to domestic abuse, which is just mad because there is no causal link. And some other things about women, no liking football or something. So she says all of this, and she's asked by one of the members, Is this a survey that you did recently, specifically in relation to this bill? Yes, she said. So off we go. So one supporters phoned her up, a young woman, and phoned them up and said, where, where did you get this evidence for? Because that's no reflective of my experience or anybody that I know's experience. I'm, I'm just wondering where you get it from and how many people were there at these meetings and how valid it is and how we can generalise for it. And she was batted away quite brusquely like, anyway this went on for quite a long time but it turned out they'd made it up it turned out that they'd done a consultation on something completely different two years previously they eventually had to admit it they weren't told off in any sense that i could see in a public way by the committee i assumed if you went and turned up at a scottish government committee and gave evidence and it turned out you'd made it up that there would be some consequences apparently there isn't it Now, what would be the circumstances where an organisation would send a full-timer to make up evidence to a committee? I can only think that they were invited. I can only think that Stonewall, Skogic, Scottish Women's Convention were all invited to give evidence that would support what the government wanted to do. And to their shame, they did that. Mm -hmm. They did that, right? you don't have to agree with me or anybody else on that bill or any other bill. But if you're gonna go and give evidence, then it's a bit of a minimal requirement that you don't lie. What you should say is, we have no idea. If you're an organization that represents a particular group and you're asked about your group's view, you say, we don't know. We've never asked them. It's not something that's come to your attention. don't just turn up and tell lies or just make generalisations about your experience as a child 40 years earlier in a particular court. I don't know. It just seemed to me bizarre. And all of those organisations, I think, would be in receipt of Scottish government funds. Now that really concerns me. That concerns me. So that's quite a big deal that you lie to a committee on request.
0: Absolutely. A couple of points of clarification about what's not been said here. First, I don't think either of us would make the claim that things were significantly better under a new Labour administration. There seems to be bigger institutional factors at play here. And secondly, I don't think what either of us would say that it's inappropriate to canvass the opinions of these various groups of women, LGBT people, etc., etc., on this topic. But okay. two things okay. seem to be going wrong here. I think that what is being said, though, is firstly that there is a bit of an institutional problem insofar as these small groups are held in the position where they are able to speak for these groups as a whole. A problem I think you also find in academia as well as the world of NGOs and so on as well, and very often they won't be able to really legitimately speak for the groups that they claim to represent. And secondly, insofar as... There is this dependency relationship between the state and these different groups, or what passes for the state in Scotland, of course. There is, in some ways, an incentive for these groups to behave in a supplicant manner in regard to power, whereas we would expect instead that part of the function they are supposed to be playing is scrutiny and holding the Scottish government to account in terms of what it's saying.
1: Okay, I'm gonna go back to what you said at the very outset, where you set out what you and I might think, and I'm gonna correct one it. Oh no,
0: so, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I'm gonna I'm happy to agree that there is absolutely nothing wrong with the Scottish Government consulting any group that they might think would have a legitimate interest in any piece of legislation and arguably if you think that every piece of legislation might have some kind of equalities impact then there may be an issue about that you're absolutely right that if it's always the same groups and those groups are not just and let's be clear about this it's not just a straightforward financial or employment relationship like yeah. you know I, I have a job it's funded by grants for the scottish government but they're pals and they hang about the same places and they have dinner together. There are all sorts of networks of relationships between these very small number of people who pop up in all sorts of different guises. So that's an issue. So there's no, I'm, I'm telling no suggestion. Just don't ask the case. Don't ask the case. That's not what I'm saying. On the first thing you said that it was exactly the same under previous administrations or it would be better under other, I think I am saying I don't have any evidence of this label. Of chumocracy. Other people may have evidence of that, but as I've just pointed out, I think when you're giving evidence, you should give evidence that you can back up. And I don't have any evidence that it was anywhere near as bad as this under the previous Labour administration. If somebody else says it is, I'm not going to argue with them. I just don't know. I can't say what will happen in any future thing because I'm neither a, I'm a fortune teller, so I really don't know about that. I am making a very specific point about the way the SNP led Scottish Government does its business. And I'll give you this other example. So there's an organisation called Supporters Direct Scotland. So Supporters Direct were initially set up in England and Wales under the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And it was a recognition by government that the relationship between football fans and their clubs is a bit more than just what's the usual Grocery store that you use or whatever. So there's this relationship between football clubs, communities, which needs to be captured by a bit more than a private set of relationships. So they set up Supporters Direct, and that funded a number of supporters trusts. And the Celtic Trust was the very first supporters trust set up in Scotland. So we were members of Supporters Direct in England, and then we became part of Supporters Direct in Scotland. And the guy who ran Supporters Direct in Scotland told us that he couldn't say too much against this bill because, after all, they were funded by the Scottish Government, and they didn't want to be too critical. And he very explicitly said that, at which point Celtic Trust left, Supporters Direct, and that was the end of that. The same guy then went and set up another organisation, which is regularly quoted by the Scottish Government, and it claims membership on the basis of if you register on the website. So if you register on the website in order to be able to read content, they claim you as a member. So they'll say, we've got 10,000 members. And what they mean is 10,000 people have at some point, and that probably includes me, clicked on their website to be able to read content. That's what they mean. So it doesn't have meetings, it doesn't have elections, it doesn't have anything. And the Scottish government will talk to them and they will speak on behalf of football supporters. So that's the kind of thing. So there's another example.
0: No, I, it's a very good example. And thank you for correcting me on it. Because I had made a presumption in some ways that the problems of SNP rule were symptomatic of problems in deeper Scottish society. There is obviously a problem of accountability and so on here. And I think that's been manifested in various different things. And some of the examples you provide are great. Part of the symptom of that is. On the one hand, there is massive public discontent at public services. On the other hand, there's these massive opinion poll weeds and people keen on the SNP and Nicola Sturgeon and so on and so forth who should be accountable. But I saw that part of the problem there was that we had a weak and underdeveloped civil society and that the snp was getting away with everything because we just don't have enough self-funding institutions built up in scotland to hold them to account but there is another way of looking at it which is saying that the snp and its rule is in and of itself part of the problem and part of the issue rather than just being a symptom of the problem so what do you think it is about the snp and do you think that there has been a shift under nicola sturgeon or is it just an ongoing thing about the nature of the (laughs) snp as an organization
1: no, just to step back a bit. I don't think I'm making a party political point. I'm making a governance point. Yeah. So the reality is if your processes and procedures allow for this kind of, I would go as far as to say wrongdoing, but this way of doing your business, then you may well be right that other parties would do the same. But I think there's something very particular The other parties are UK-wide and I think that makes it a little bit structurally different. Scotland's a very small country. The chances of you knowing a government minister are probably quite high in some situations. So there's all sorts of opportunities there for cronyism. We have a parliament that was never intended to have a majority and Mm -hmm. we've had an effective majority for a very long time. So there's structural problems here. I'm less knowledgeable about the SNP as an organisation. And I wouldn't necessarily want to talk much about that because I don't really know them. I know people who are members, but I don't really know closely anybody who's an activist within the SNP or who holds any positions within it. I think because they're small, because they come from a small country, because they've had a particular history, they're more inclined to huddle around their pals. I think they're very middle class in nature. That might have changed a little bit since 2014, but I suspect Mervy supporters are no way activists. I think they're really cliquey, centre-right, pro-business, small party. I just think we've got a real problem in Scotland because of the size, because of the size of the population, and because we have a parliament that allows for this because it was never intended to have a majority. And then you throw the particularities of the SNP as the governing party into that. And you end up with what we've got. Now, has that got better or worse? As you know, we're at stage one in the Gender Recognition Reform Bill, I think is what it's called. It's a Gender Recognition Reform Bill. There's another consultation on that, which ended last night at midnight. And the first set of evidence sessions are this afternoon. So nobody on that committee will have had any chance to know what was happening with the consultation. And what will happen with that consultation is civil servants will summarise it for them. But there's opportunities for quite lengthy statements for citizens, for as lengthy as you want it to be, for citizens to make points. So they'll try and collect those points into themes and they'll do all that. But they've already got organisations in and questioning them now. So they don't have that evidence to be able to, why would you know have a gap? Why would you know wait until you've had that? Now, I wanted to respond to that and I knew it was going on, but I hadn't got around to doing it. And yesterday, knowing that it was going to finish, I went, I've just got on the Scottish Parliament website. I went into bills and I looked under bills. I couldn't find it. I looked under committees. I couldn't I could not find it. I had to go back onto Twitter, look up an organisation I knew that had been talking about this and search their Twitter account to see if I could find the link to where I might engage in that consultation. So that can't be right, can it? That's something that could easily be fixed. We maybe can't help the fact that we've got quite a small population and everybody yeah. knows each other, but we can help that. That's not true. But just the people with power seem to all know each other. Just no matter what you think about this issue. It really doesn't matter. If they want you to be consulted and they then want to quote that consultation back at you, they need to be able to make that accessible for people. People need to know what's happening and they need to be able to engage in it. The very first consultation on that particular piece of legislation, as far as I'm aware, nobody knew about it. It was like loads of people I heard talking about saying they knew nothing about it. And I think there's clear evidence that it was done very quickly and nobody knew about it. And so only the people who were tipped off knew about it. And therefore, their responses were taken to represent the views of the country at home. And I
0: suspect they don't. There seem to be both things going on here because, again, it's regardless of what you think about this or any other issue, but it does seem that there's a dual process going on whereby debates become rather sterilised. And this is reflected in the fact that if you take away the constitutional dynamic, in a lot of ways there's not a lot of debates really seem to go on in Scottish politics. Even the Conservatives seem to be in some ways relatively on board with much of what seems to go on and the differences are mostly of degree and managerial in nature. But I think what you tend to get, partly as a consequence of this whole village atmosphere, you get very obscure consultations and consultation processes that tend to be for the chums and the very interested and nerdy, quite frankly. On the other hand, when any controversial issue does come up, it often does tend to be the case that rather than have the debate out, it will become locked in a scrimmage of consultations and forgotten. And both things seem to work in a similar way, I think, at times. And I wonder if you agree with this, to depoliticise, other than, of course, the fact that we're still all arguing seemingly about the constitution, albeit it never seems to go anywhere. Yeah.
1: yeah. Politics since 2014 has been a bit tedious really in terms of those kinds of things, utterly tedious. There's nothing, and I'm talking about everywhere. I'm not just talking about the parliament, I'm talking about social media, I'm talking about wherever you have these debates. They're utterly tedious because everything has to be forced through the prism of the constitutional question. So there'll be a whole generation of people. Since so 2014, you know, you're talking about eight years later. If you were like a young teenager, you'll have spent your entire, you know, unless you've been engaged in the trade union movement or some other socialist party or something like that, that's the only shit you'll have been taught. And yeah. you just think, presumably, that's the way it's meant to be. And then you've got lots of older people who should know better who also. That's all they can think about. All they can think about is their complete personal resentment. Really, it's like they've been let down. This was something they loved and it's let them down and they just rant endlessly and they just cannot see anything other than that. the whole Corbyn area, they couldn't look at the policies or the politics or anything like that. Nobody's talking about class. One of the things that might happen in the upcoming period is that people are going to have to start talking about class because we do have to start talking about it. So we've had really low-level debates in Scotland, and now we're in a situation where the whole of the UK, all the debates in the North of Ireland and England and Wales with Westminster, they're all corrupt and rotten, and something has to happen to break out of that. And if people, individuals, like individuals can't really engage in discussions about policies and events that are impacting on people that they can see impacting on them run about them. And they can't have that discussion. What has gone wrong? So anyway, in this context, I think we've got a real problem with politics, with political debate. I was talking about formal consultations around legislation. There are, of course, other kinds of consultation. I think this comes back to your question. Do we sometimes put it out to consultation because they just want to kick it into the long grass and no think about it for a while? So I think that does happen. So I was asked to go and speak to the Short Life Working Group on peaceful parades in Scotland the other day. <laughs> And this is a group of mainly academics who have been engaged in discussions in the North about the prades Commission and all of that. The idea that the Scottish Government thinks that we can gain some understanding of how to handle this issue from a post-conflict society is utterly mad. It's mad beyond belief. So in 2018, the Irish Catholic community decided no, we have had enough of this. We've really had enough anti-Catholic organisations marching in military fashion, past our places of worship, and we'd really like them to stop that. So let's have a look at the legislation. Yeah, the legislation is fairly clear that they don't have a right to do that. and, And really, we have the mechanisms in place for the needs of other parts of the community to be taken into account. Let's do that. Would the Scottish Government do four years later? They asked people who were trying to bring together a post-conflict society whether they did anything to say. But what was really interesting was that they were saying that they looked to Scotland. They thought Scotland potentially had the answer in that it had looked like a democratic process. The reality is that... The process doesn't work and it seeds people's human and civil rights to the police. That's where they go because the democratically elected committees of local authorities, which are meant to deal with these issues, don't convene unless the police say there is an issue. So if the police fail to say there's an issue, they don't meet and nothing happens. The parade just goes ahead and you can't do anything about that. So it was quite interesting having that discussion with them because they were of the view when they were looking at these issues that Scotland offered an answer. And here we have Scotland looking to them thinking they might have the answer for us. And you just think, no, you're actually no serious here, are you? Rather than grasp the nettle and address the issue that there are a set of communities, there are rights, there are stuff, just apply the law. Without fear or favour, the law that we have, we don't need new law, we don't need change the law, just apply the law we have and that should work. It will make people unhappy because they will be prevented from doing something that they thought they had a right to do, but it turns out they don't. And so it will make some people unhappy, but hey-ho, that's one of the things that happens when you exercise your proper governance and then there's another element of consultation or discussion or engagement with citizens, which again seems to me to be hugely corrupted. So Call it Out has been invited to be involved in a number of groups. So we have attended meetings of the expert reference group on ethnicity and COVID deaths. We've also been invited to turn up to discussions of the education committees decolonising the Curriculum. Yeah. Uh, so we find out about these meetings only because there's a sort of an umbrella body for ethnic minority groups which shares that information. Scottish Government does not say one of its civil servants Take yourself onto social media Look around See what organisations there are Who's representing who What communities have we got That we know about Who represents them Or who can at least speak In some regards No, 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 no no. They pick and choose And they pick and choose Who'll be the secretariat for them That's the other thing So they come to somebody And they say Will you be the secretariat for this Which means They set the agenda They call the meetings And they basically manage The whole discussion So who do they ask to do that? It turns out it's the same wee groups that they asked to do everything else. So the same small groups convene these meetings. They're supposed to send out minutes. They don't. So our experience of those groups, as we turn up in good faith, we contribute to the discussion. We then find that we're not included in the minutes. Contributions are not included or the minutes don't appear for a long time or X or Y or Z. So these various things happen. And then they take it further and we're explicitly excluded from some things. So they say, no, no, we're having this other group. So we've had this group and we've talked to you, but now we're making this smaller group and they're going to do something. But they select groups and they make decisions which are not either in line with equalities legislation or anything else. And they just give those people carte blanche to do it. And it's the same people in different organisations in different guises who just basically fulfil these roles. So we've got another bit of this thing that the government does. They're just constantly using the same people. They refer to the same ideas. They're completely captured in different areas of policy by one group or another. And they don't deviate from that. The SNP, what I would say about them and what I do know about them, they're an absolute machine as far as that's concerned. They're like the Stepford Waves of Scottish politics. You don't deviate. And this is all going on and normal people are going about their business and they assume that they go to the polls and they elect their representative. And I would say some of these people have far more power than the people you voted for to stand to, to represent you in parliament or indeed potentially the same thing goes on in the council. In fact, I think it does. In fact, I know it does. This is another example I'm going to have to tell you. But when Glasgow City Council decided that it would have a famine memorial, and it had been talking about it for a while, let me see great. They invited some groups onto the Memorials Working Group or Committee or something. Do you know who they invited? did <laughs> they really, right? They invited the Orange Order. And they invited <laughs> the Rangers Supporters Trust. And I believe they invited an organisation which used to have members, but by that point had a paid full-timer and that was about bit up. It was supposed to have been representative of the Irish community, but clearly wasn't it. But they invited the Orange Order and the Rangers Supporters Trust. I cannot think what you would put together in your head that would make sense, that would justify that. I'm no suggestion that these organisations should never be talked to in any regard. There may be issues where you might want to talk to them, but would it be this? And of course, as a result, what they did was they produced, <laughs> I don't know if it was as a result, I don't know if I can directly blame these people for it, I suspect I blame the council and council officials, but they ended up with the abomination that currently sits in an overgrown wilderness in Glasgow Green, which looks like an upturned drawing boat. Oh, aye, and then they decided to call it the Highland and Irish Famine Memorial, <laughs> when as far as I'm aware, there were no recorded deaths in the Highlands of the Potato Blight. And we let's not get into that because that's a whole other discussion, but, <laughs> but that's what they ended up when that's what they did. So they choose who they talk to and they develop these people as people who can be taught And they either fund them or somehow give them what they want, promote them in some way, sponsor them. And they then say, you're the people who's going to represent these people. Mostly these people don't know they're being represented by these groups. Good ideas might come out of that, but it would only be part of a random process.
0: Certainly what you're not likely to get is many of these groups that are really taking the Scottish government to task. And that's the real problem in some ways that I can see. Hello listeners, I hope you enjoyed the first part of this episode, which was available free, taking on the questions of the chumocracy in Scottish politics and the corruption of governance under the SNP and of course previously under New Labour as well. I hope you found that an interesting discussion. In part two, we'll be taking on some major questions which Jeanette, of course, has real expertise on in relation to Irish identity in Scotland, questions of racism and so-called sectarianism in Scottish politics, and the impact of Irishness on Scottish politics, particularly in the context of the recent elections in Northern Ireland, the growth of Sinn Féin south of the border, and the wider topics connected to The Breakup of Britain. If you think that's an attractive offer, that is available for our Patreon listeners if you give us a few bucks a month. It's well worth doing so. Firstly, because you get access to great content on themes of socialist theory and history and The Breakup of Britain and all sorts of other great things. But also because many of you probably shout at the television or shout at the newspaper or shout at Twitter about how much you hate the mainstream media, about how it's all a bunch of shells, about how it's all controlled by millionaires and the so-called philanthropy industrial complex doesn't make things any better. Of course it doesn't. Well, the only alternative, if you hate all that shit, and of course you do, the only alternative is to support the development of critical media such as Conta. So please do so, please give us your few bucks if you can afford it and you'll hear some great content and obviously first and foremost the second part of this interview on the Irish dimension in Scottish politics.
1: with guns Kids with guns Taken over By one